Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel and proud member of the Robots Radio podcast network. My name is Aramethius and today we're continuing our look into one of the most fascinating cults in Tamriel that underwent not one but two religious revolutions, several wars and produced possibly the most stable theocracy that Tamriel has ever seen. Today we're asking... What can we learn from the history of the Dunma? Or, more accurately, I think I should say, from the religious history of the Dunma. This was going to be the second part in a history of the Chimera and Dunma, but it's kind of blown up a bit, so it's now going to be a three-parter. So today we're just looking at the religious side, and we're looking at the more secular societal governmental side next time but first of all before we kick off with that i just want to say thank you ever so much to my new patreon livia who is the roleplay lead with the law seekers guild she is doing a fantastic job getting some real role playing happening in the articles online it's absolutely fantastic to see everyone getting involved in that and she's been absolutely magnificently active chatting with me while i've been making the notes for this podcast and just offering opinions, questions, that sort of stuff. So if you want to have access to my notes and see the process and be a part of it, as well as getting access to things early, become my patron at patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty. And thank you ever so much once again, Livia, for supporting me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on board. I also want to address some comments from Mystic San on Reddit following the post that I made of the previous episode on Reddit, uh, that he's been making some fantastic comments whenever I've posted things on there before. And some of the what stuff that he's come up with lately is kind of interesting. He's, in particular, I want to say this, quote, I think the collapse of Velothi civilization may have been introduced into the law to solve a conundrum, why would the great houses and the Ashlanders stem from primitive nomadic tribes? You'd think that migrants from Somerset would have brought the knowledge of their advanced civilization with them, and that's in fact what we see in places like Cyrodiil, High Rock, and the aforementioned Wizard Towers in Vardenfell. Either the Chimer were Somerset's Morlocks, or there was a catastrophic regression at some point in the timeline. I'm not entirely on board with that idea personally, because Veloth was after a simpler way of life than the Altmer on Somerset, but, and so is likely to have not really brought that much stuff with them, although there are accounts of vast fleets of boats um, in the original Velothi migration. So I don't think they would have taken that much with them, just simply because they wouldn't want to. But it's a different take on quite why Velothi civilization collapsed. It's um, an out-of-game one that is trying to rationalise why they're doing it from a design perspective, which is something I hadn't really considered. And there's also a correction that Mystic San wants to flag for me as well. I said that we didn't really know when the Needs invaded the Chimeri lands, but we do. Um, he says that it's from an NPC called Sorcerer Vunal in The Elder Scrolls Online, who says, quote, early in the first era when the Chimer were still new to Morrowind, the Needs invaded. 
and in the same breath also identifies those needs as the ancestors of the Nords a bit later on. So thank you ever so much, Mystic Sand, for your comments. I really appreciate them. Keep them coming. I just want to kick off, as usual, by saying that this is my own interpretation of the Dunmary religious history, and I may well get things wrong. As you've heard, I can perfectly well miss things or go through things in the wrong way. If you have other opinions on this, I would absolutely love to hear them. Drop me a line at writtenuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com, catch me on Twitter at Aramithius or join the Written and Uncertainty Discord to go through these ideas. I would absolutely love to hear what you think and start incorporating some of those ideas into the podcast as well. And now to the Dunmer. We're starting off a little bit before the Dunmer were a reality. We need to go into their creation and what that means before we can discuss the full religious history of the Dunmer as such. And it's probably a good idea to go back and listen to the previous cast on the Kaima if you want to get caught up on the history before that point. But going back to their creation means going back to the Battle of Red Mountain. I'm not going to go into too much detail about the battle itself because I've already done a podcast on it, but that's probably where the Dunmer as a culture really began. The battle brought about some changes to the society of the House Mer and sorry, I'm using the term House Mer to differentiate between the settled House Kymer or Dunmer, whatever they were, compared to the Ashlanders. I'm not differentiating by race as such yet, but I want to make the distinction between the Houses and the Ashlanders. But the biggest change to the society of the Houses is that the secular Houses, if the text the War on the First Council is to be believed, were the ones that lost this left the orthodox houses, in inverted commas, which were, in theory, most religious in their outlook. And yes, that includes the Telvani. The Telvani have an interesting view on the tribunal, and we'll get to precisely what that is next time. But let's just take that for now, just without the caveats for the Telvani and so on. But it does mean that in a similar manner to the original Velothi Exodus, the House Mer were religious as such, although, part of me says, not really religious enough, if you like. They were willing to live in relative comfort, whereas Veloth preached asceticism, and we never see that in any of the houses, even before the tribunal arrive, which I think means that what the Dunmer understand by piety, so to speak, has already shifted before they became Dunmer. The very idea of House Mer at all means that they've become distinct from their nomadic chimeric origins. And exactly when they became Dunmer is a bit of a question. You notice I said that that's probably where the Dunmer culture began. But the change in their skin that makes them Dunmer is something that's credited to both Azura, if you believe the Ashlanders, and Vivek, if you adhere to tribunal theology. I think that the Ashlanders are probably closer to the truth here, as Vivek's own account of the change credits Azura with it. And just to quote the Battle of Red Mountain for a moment, 
And no sooner than we had completed our rituals and begun to discover our newfound powers, the Daedra Lord Azura appeared and cursed us for our forsworn oaths. By her powers of prophecy, she assured us that her champion, Nerevar, true to his oath, would return to punish us for her, our perfidy, and to make sure that such profane knowledge might never again be used to mock and defy the will of the gods. But Sothisil said to her, The old gods are cruel and arbitrary, and distant from the hopes and fears of Myr. Your age is past. We are the new gods, born of the flesh, and wise and caring of the needs of our people. Spare us your threats and chiding in constant spirit. We are bold and fresh and will not fear you. Embracing this idea and this difference then became a hallmark of the Dunma culture that the tribunal were attempting to create. And Vivek actually takes credit for it herself in Sermon 32 of the 36 Lessons and links it back to Boethia's teachings to quote, Velothi, your skin has become the pregnant darkness. My brooding has brought this on. Remember that Boethia asked you to become the colour of bruise. How else to show yourselves people of the exodus into the vital pain? This is linking back to both an earlier statement in the 36 lessons and an implication in the text Change Ones, where Boethia, quote, demonstrated the right way to wear their skin. If you take this view, then the tribunal are simply doing what Boethia recommended the Kaima do in the first place and change their skins. Although it's also worth remembering that the Change One's text is probably from someone who is thoroughly invested in the tribunal religious system. So they probably wouldn't talk about anything bad about the skin change because that would discredit the temple. And precisely when the change from Kaima to Dunma happened is unclear. The Battle of Red Mountain text has this happening some years, to quote, after the battle. But, and the Ashlander account, Nerevar at Red Mountain, strongly implies it happens immediately after the death of Nerevar at the battle itself. I've not actually seen this resolved anywhere, unfortunately, and there were definitely more around in the games who would remember the change, I'm particularly thinking of Devaith Fear here, but we never get an opportunity to ask him or anyone else about it, which is a bit disappointing from my perspective. The cleanest divide that we can come to is about the difference between the Kaima and the Dunma, is that the Kaima worship the Daedra and the Dunma worship the Tribunal, with the change in race being accompanied by a change in belief system. This goes along with the change of the Orsama and potentially the Aelids as well, both of which had a change in belief that brought about a change in their skin in some ways. Michael Kirkbride has also referred to the idea that, quote, wars then, that is in the Dawn era, were ideologies given skin. However, Vivek's account does suggest that this took some time and it's not exactly universal either. The Ashlanders worship the Daedra throughout their entire history, and their skin still changed colour. So this makes it feel a bit more like the Kaima became Dunma because of Azura's curse, which affirms a lot of the tribunal murdered Nerevar type accounts, which also feels like the most accepted version of events within the Elder Scrolls fandom at present. Although there are 
other versions of events out there. Regardless of their similarities of skin, the Ashlanders and the House Dunmer do espouse very different virtues, they do have different ideologies. As we talked about last time, the good Daedra promote virtues that are mostly helpful for an insurrection, things like Boethia's unlawful overthrow of authority. The Seven Graces virtues of the Tribunal are a bit more stable in what they produce. There are some more potentially violent ones like Daring, Pride and Valour, but go along with that you also have Humility, Generosity, Courtesy and Justice. These are virtues which work together to produce a more stable polity, although it does have a bit of an edge to it. And there's also a question about how you get from one to the other. Taking our world as an example, societal change is generally neither quick or easy. It takes a fair amount of force to be applied for a new facet of a culture to actually emerge properly. And if we take a rather strong view of how politics works and follow along with the thought of Thomas Hobbes for a second, and I think this is probably what happened, Hobbes held that humanity's natural state is a war of all against all, where life is, to quote, nasty, brutish and short. In order to establish peace, which Hobbes believes that everyone wants, people give over their natural personal autonomy and liberty over to a sovereign who then has absolute control over all of the tools of government. According to Hobbes, the reason that they do this is always fear, either of death in general or the power of the sovereign itself. The tribunal does seem to function in a similar way to that, although there are a few nuances as to how that violence is applied and where and so on. First of all, Vivek seems, even at the best of times, to offer some sort of a threat to the Dunma. I don't really want to go too much into it, as I've already done a cast looking at Vivek specifically, but I do want to note that Z holds both stability and violence in balance. To quote Vivek and Mephala, As known in the West, Mephala is the demon of murder, sex and secrets. All of these themes contain subtle aspects and violent ones, assassination slash genocide, courtship slash orgy, tact slash poetic truths. Mephala is understood paradoxically to contain and integrate these contradictory themes, and all of these subtle undercurrents and contradictions are present in the Dunma concepts of Vivek, even if they're not explicitly described and explained in Temple Doctrine. These two sides to Vivek indicate that it's possible, or even probable, that the establishment of the tribunal religion and society required some violence. Even its maintenance seems to need that, frankly, if you look at the Inquisition-type role that the ordinators seem to play throughout quite a bit of Dunma history. However, I do think that we have an example here also of how the House of Troubles could be useful in the life of the Dunma polity if we look at Vivek's interactions with Baal in the 36 lessons. In those, Vivek willingly submits to Molag Baal in order to learn particular secrets. The dominion of a Hobbesian sovereign is similar to that in that it must control everything in order to be effective. So legislation, executive powers, religion and societal norms are all within the purview of the Hobbesian sovereign. So this necessarily entails a monopoly on violence as well and is well within Baal's sort of sphere, but it's also something that the tribunal have never really had, unless we start thinking about Lyrock as a form of implied violence towards the whole of the Dunma people 
by the tribunal and by Vivek particularly. It might be that Lyrock is that ever-present violence that the sovereignty of the Dunbar people, or the sovereignty of the tribunal at least, resides in its threat that Lyrock presents over Vivek City and over the whole of Vardenfell. And despite that threat of violence against the people, the tribunal established themselves as god-kings of Morrowind through the establishment of the temple as well, and through the personifications of their versions of virtue, at least if you read their propaganda. And while the Kaima emphasised the beyond and a striving against adversity as the way to live life, there's definitely a stepping away from that sort of thing, and into a more settled attitude amongst the Dunmer. The quote that we talked about earlier from Vivek's account of the Battle of Red Mountain talks about the tribunal being wise in caring for the needs of the people. I think these are quite telling, even if they are possibly put into Sothisil's mouth by Vivek, and perhaps especially if they're put into his mouth by Vivek, because they were clearly something that Vivek wanted to say. The tribunal are here to care for the Dunmer by that account. They are protectors, they keep out some of the harshness of reality. And they also provide a personal relationship with the people, which is one of the defining features of both tribunal worship and ancestor worship in general. The idea that your gods are with you can have a very distinct impact on how you view the divine in general. And I think that spills over into Dunmurry culture, particularly the idea that they are chosen and they are better than everyone else because they are with their gods throughout the tribunal period and they have been blessed by the gods who came from them in a way that few other cultures can actually say. And that has a very different impact on the Dunmer's religion compared to how it falls out in the rest of Tamriel. The text, Reflections on Cult Worship, which is a presumably Cyrodiilic scholar writing about the differences between the Cyrodiilic and Dunmer worship, puts it like this, quote, The tribunal temple in Morrowind and its predecessor house ancestor cults are, by contrast with imperial cults, extremely intimate and personal. In ancestor cults, the worshipper has a direct relationship with the blood family ancestor spirit, and the temple cultist's relationship with the tribunal is a relationship with a living, breathing god who walks the earth, speaks in person with priests and cultists, and whose daily actions are prescribed models for the daily actions of their followers. The differences in religious temperament between Heartlanders and Morrow in Dunmer accounts in large part for consistent political and social misunderstanding between the two cultures. Heartlanders do not consider cult affairs as serious matters, while the Dunmer consider cult affairs, and in particular ancestral spirit veneration, to be very serious matters indeed. Heartlanders are casual and tolerant in religious matters. Dunmer are passionate and extremely intolerant. Heartlanders do not speak with their gods, and do not think of their actions as under constant review and judgement by their gods. The Dunmer feel that all they think and do is under the ever-watchful eye of the tribunal and family ancestor spirits. This makes religion a far more direct, oppressive, and above all personal thing for the Dunmer, although each house subculture does put a different stress on it. Uh, there's an expectation that the tribunal, in their wise government of Resdane, want the Dunmer to follow their actions, or at least follow what they say their actions are. Uh, 
and there's an emphasis on becoming like the tribunal rather than becoming the same thing as the tribunal. The divine is expressed in a shift from distant gods to once mortal gods, but the existence of once mortal gods is considered a sufficient thing rather than a goal for the Dunma people, if you like. The tribunal are enlightened beings, gods and blessed, but they are not bodhisattvas. They are not here to teach you how to become like them, probably. That's particularly the case if we think back to Vivek's various exhortations in the 36 lessons that here people should become the colour of bruised, quote. And with that transformation accomplished, they may now be a complete people. Once you've become the colour of bruise, you don't need to do anything further. And I think the acknowledgement of that stifling is also expressed by Vivek in another piece of duality from here. Um, in the unlicensed text, Vex Teaching, which says this, quote, The arbitrary and the motivated in regarding one's divine ancestors Ignoring a manifest concern for belief in them as us, instead we concern ourselves with intensity and its relationship with action, valorizing little narratives and proliferation of narratives in our native cultures to the point where there is no perch from extraneous content. Pure subjectivity is no longer possible. Instead it becomes akin to sensory deprivation, yet without the fear, for we sense things that remind us of the dawn, the sacrifice into the stabilizing bones, new-built towers with broken intentions, the first metals gone blue from exposure to the long sun. The valorizing of little narratives here is, I think, an important aspect of Dunmurray culture, and there's also the turning away from them as us. There's the difference between the ancestors there that isn't present in the original ways of thinking about it. Dunmary culture also seems to go out of its way to make the little narratives worthwhile, and particularly in the veneration of saints that did no real wonders, but were thoroughly mortal. I mean, you look at the lives of many of those saints, and they're modelled on communal good works more than anything else. Seeking valour in the little things done is what's going on with those, and I think we have a possible moment of candour from Vivek here, if that's even possible, saying that praise of those saints that do those little narrative cuts Dunmurray culture off from its true self because they have no desire to move onwards and instead it's going back and looking back to the dawn. There's a sense of contentment with the present state of affairs just so long as everyone does their bit and helps everyone along. Uh, at least that's the impression we get up until the coming of the Nereverine in the Third Era, that sets another ball rolling altogether, but I first want to talk about the limits of tribunal authority, even within something that they entirely control, in theory. The most obvious place to start thinking about those limits is the Ashlanders. The Ashlanders never submitted to tribunal authority and see them as abominations against the Volothi faith. They carry on worshipping in the ways of the Kaima, although there is the implication that this is tolerated by the tribunal hierarchy. It's only ever actually put down when there's a potential Nereverine in the offing, which could present a threat to the overall tribunal order. That being said, though, there's a history of the Ashlanders being marginalised by the settled Kaima and Dunma clans. 
we have this from Hulia's notes, which were given to the Nereverine. Quote, Under the civilised peace of the Grand Council, and with the strong central authority of the Temple, the economic and military power of the settled Dunma quickly outstripped that of the nomadic Dunma. The nomadic Dunma were marginalised into the poorest, most hostile land, in particular into the Vardenfell wastes. Beyond mistaking the Kaima for the Dunma over all of that, this presents the sidelining of the Ashlanders as an economic phenomenon, which I think is probably broadly true. Another reason for the focus on Vardenfell for the tribes is that until the Third Era, it was a temple preserve with minimal development permitted. And this means that, rather ironically, the Ashlanders potentially owe the temple for having a place to maintain their lifestyle and ancestor worship. Uh, one of my patrons, Enrico Dandolo, has also pointed out that this is kind of similar to how historic nomadic societies tended to operate, that they established trading relations and regular routes back to settled populations and regular points of contact, that the nomadic lifestyle wasn't purely nomadic or totally random, but they depended to an extent on the settled populations, even if you go back to the pastoral tribes in the earliest days of the Middle East, that's pretty much how nomads tended to operate, insofar as they're called nomads. And that thought about nomads and pastoral tribes and clannishness and so on isn't particularly unlikely, I don't think, especially if you consider one of the big thematic precursors to the Elder Scrolls Three, which was Frank Herbert's Dune. In the Dune series, the Fremen live on a harsh desert planet and turn out to be some of the galaxy's finest warriors once they're driven to leave it on a jihad following their Mahdi Muad'Dib. And they're ultimately kept in reserves on planets later in the series in order to preserve something of their old way of life, although they become a pale shadow of what they once were. I see a similar thing happening to the Ashlanders in Morrowind's history, that Vivek was keeping them safe throughout the time of the tribunal in order to preserve the old ways. And this is particularly poignant when you consider this pretty much is what happened after the Red Year, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Uh, suffice it to say for now that I think definitely that the Fremen served as some level of inspiration for the Ashlanders in more ways than one. And the tribunal is also limited a bit by the great houses, although the god kings do manage something like control over them. There was a tradition of war between the great houses with formal rules of engagement, slights and insults that was sanctioned by ancient Dunmurray and possibly Kymurray custom. So there's that sense of oppressing violence and keeping the monopoly of violence at the highest level of state, so to speak. But it didn't entirely work out that way. Although the so-called house wars are highly ritualized assassinations, basically, and they rarely break out into all-out war, the houses do still maintain independent militaries. And we have the example of the War of Two Houses between House Drez and House Halalu in the 559th year of the Second Era, which was an all-out war. So the tribunal have served as generals in those armies in the wars that Morrowind's engaged in with external powers, but the houses still maintain some degree of control over their armies. And 
the process that I get the feeling that it is with the tribunal is one of negotiation and inviting and so on because of how all of the different houses chose different strategies and it all fell to bits when Tiber Septim arrived. But we'll take a bit more of a deeper look in how the houses operate next time. As I mentioned earlier, the coming of the Nereverine in the 427th year of the Third Era did rather turn everything upside down for the Tribunal. The third edition of the Pocket Guide to the Empire sums it up nicely, quote, Dagoth Ur and two members of the Tribunal, Almalexia and Sothasil, were destroyed in the Nereverine's fury. Vivek too may have been killed, but his fate is currently undetermined. The Nereverine likewise has vanished. That puts everything the Tribunal worked for out of the window, that everyone stabilising everything, centralising power around them just suddenly disappears, and so it's just left in complete chaos. Although I do think it's likely that Vivek may have anticipated it, because he says this after you defeat Dagoth Ur in The Elder Scrolls III. Quote, Without the power of the heart, our divine powers diminish. Our days as gods are numbered. I have told my priests that I shall withdraw from the world, and that the temple should be prepared for a change. We may be honoured no longer as gods, but as saints and heroes, and the temple will return to the faith of our forefathers, the worship of our ancestors, and the three good Daedra, Azura, Mephala, and Boethia. The missions and traditions of the temple must continue, but without its living gods. And this is pretty much what happened after the events of the Red Year, when Lyrock crashed down into Vivek City. The old temple collapsed, and the tribunal were downgraded into sainthood, and the Daedra were worshipped as the Reclamations. Another reason that I think this was planned for was that the dissident priests were kept on as a faction within the temple throughout a chunk of the history of the tribunal. Just as a quote from the Progress of Truth, which is more or less the manifesto of the dissident priests, it says this, while challenging the divinity of the tribunal, the dissidents do not challenge the sainthood or heroism of the tribunal. In fact, the dissident priests advocate restoring many of the elements of fundamentalist ancestor worship as practiced by the ancestors and by Saint Venoth. That's pretty much exactly Vivek's spoken sentiments there, which is why I think Vivek probably planned for it in the progress of her people. In particular, the idea that the book The Reclamations puts forward is that the role of the Ashlanders take in all this. To quote, The Ashlanders are now lauded as the keepers of the old ways and having true vision. It's now quite common for many of the Dunmer people to make the arduous pilgrimages into the ash wastes to seek the counsel of the wise women. So this feels to me a lot like we were talking about earlier about June, where the god Emperor Leto II kept uh, the Fremen in specifically controlled reserves so that they could be something that's venerated and looked up to by the people. And to be honest, that's not where the parallels stop with this particular narrative, because if you've listened to this podcast before, I've probably gone on about this at length, but the god emperor Leto II institutes a millennia-long theocratic rule that suppresses dissent and preserves an element of the Fremen. Does that sound even remotely familiar? And it gets 
even more familiar when you consider that after Leto's death, humanity was plunged into chaos and then scattered to the stars. That sounds to me a lot like the events of the Red Year. After the death or disappearance of the Tribunal, the Dunma suffered a cataclysm that scatters them throughout Tamriel. And although from what we can tell Morrowind is being rebuilt, the parallels to me feel a bit too good to ignore. Particularly as we have this bit from Sermon 35 of the 36 Lessons. Quote, Later, and by that I mean much, much later, my reign will be seen as an act of the highest love, which is a return from the astral destiny and the marriages between. By that I mean the catastrophes which will come from all five corners. On this reading, which I'm sure I've spoken about before, Vivek saves the Dunma people through causing the fall of Bardao and the Red Year. It scatters them and means that they preserve themselves and their ways in other ways than they're accustomed to, which is what they need in order to progress forward. That signifies the end of the tribunal and a return to the subversive ways of the Daedra as well, because the Daedra give them those virtues that they need to survive as underdog people and in a crisis. Precisely what that crisis is, apart from the Red Year itself, we've no idea yet, but something may happen, and I'm very curious to see what that might be, and basically if I'm right, if I'm brutally honest. And that's about it for this week, looking at the various religious nuances of the Dunma and how that has evolved throughout the history that we know of them in the Elder Scrolls games. Please do join me next week where we'll be looking at the secular side of things, the great houses, the various tongs, and the relationships that the Kaima and Dunma have had with the other nations of Tamriel. But until then, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aramithius. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glembotsky. Check them out on SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and I'll see you next time. Hey, I'm Tom. And I'm Stuart. And we're from the Dungeons & Dragons Lorecast. We talk about all things connected to D&D lore. And we're on the Robots Radio Network. So if you're into Dungeons and Dragons or you're into lore, then come check us out. You can find us on any podcatcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. Roll more dice. That's the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast. Hello. Hi. Do you like bad movies? Do you find yourself defending bad movies, saying things like, well, the soundtrack was okay, or the costumes were pretty fun? From the previous hosts of It's Not That Bad Podcast, we bring you Fresh Tomatoes, the movie podcast, from Simone LaRue and Chad Ekovitz. Every week, we review two movies that did not do well critically, but we say, hey, there are some nice things about them. Maybe Rotten Tomatoes was wrong. Maybe they're all fools, and you should watch these movies regardless. We'll also talk about scenes that could have saved it, and we'll often refer to Simone's cats because they're amazing and adorable and we love them <laughs> and at the end of each review we will tell you whether we would watch this movie again or in what circumstances we would recommend you watch this movie so join us on july 9th for the first drop of our main episode and then two days later for our drop of our minisodes and on robots radio podcast network come see us on july 9th we love you so much already bye, bye. are you worried you don't have all the answers have you ever found yourself in an internet rabbit hole call, call mystery, mystery time, time live today, today. 
It's a new detective business. With plenty of heart. And a questionable track record. We're only in the office for an hour. Every Wednesday. Come hang out. Solve a mystery. It's a podcast. It's a live show. It's a swell time. Subscribe, Subscribe now. now. The producers of Mysteries High Live have finally not taken the advice for guiding subhosts because they have no idea what they're doing. No mystery will actually be fully solved. And that's individualized opinion of outside source or sheer luck. You can find them live on the Twitch app and find our podcast later on YouTube, Anchor, Spotify, Google, and iTunes. Listening may cause hurtful your death or loss of sanity. We are sorry. This is probably legally binding and you cannot do it.